I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. And this week we're back with part two of Tiffany Coates' Grand Adventures. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Oh, we got a good one for you today. We got part two of Tiffany Coates' Grand Adventures. We also have Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. And we're going to also talk with Ben DeBoer from mototour.com, which may well be the next craze for motorcycle enthusiasts. Stay with us. Today you're going to hear the balance of Tiffany Coates, what we're calling part two of Tiffany Coates' Grand Adventures. First, we're going to talk about a new website that's meant just for motorcyclists, and you're going to love this bit of information. And then we're also going to have Grant Johnson come on and talk about packing light. So stick around, we've got a full show for you. A number of episodes ago, we spoke with a fellow named Don Parsons, who told us about his way of planning for his trips. And what he was doing is he was getting onto local forums in areas that he was planning to visit and posting there that he was looking for information about the area. And he would get information and he would make connections. And it's really a fantastic planning tool. Well, there's something out there now that takes that even one step further. It's almost the Facebook for motorcycles, and it's called Motor Tour at uh, mototour.com. Now, this is a website that you go to and you sign up, you make up a profile, but it is totally bike-orientated. So to find out more about this, we're going to talk with the founder of Moto Tour, Ben DeBoer. Ben, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me. Ben, tell us what Moto Tour is. It's a, an online community for bikers worldwide, and the idea is to um, basically connect bikers, you know, and, and make the most out of your trips, uh, be it um, a trip down the road to the next town, uh, an overnight trip, or uh, even if it's uh, around the world adventure. Basically, the idea is you share the knowledge that you have, like the best routes and places to stay and everything like that. And you share it online with for other bikers. And the idea is that you can meet other bikers in any other town as you go. And uh, what happens is, say, for example, that you're um, on a trip to New York and you're stopping in all these towns, you can put out a message and say, look, I'm going to be in town. Uh, do any other bikers here want to meet up? And you'll meet up with people that can show you around their hometown. And uh, basically, you can go for a ride and you'll meet other people that you ordinarily wouldn't meet. I think this seems like a great idea. Tell us how you came up with it. How I came up with the idea, um, it was actually a pretty funny story. Uh, a few years ago, I was uh, on, a, on a trip uh, through Ukraine on the bike. And uh, I decided to come back home. Uh, a friends of mine, they went on to Georgia, but I didn't have the time or the money to join them. So uh, my, my parting words from my friend was, don't ride through Moldova. Um, <laughs> and I did. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but uh, it wasn't so much Moldova. It's this little breakaway state called Transnistria. Um, and it's, uh, it's not an officially recognized country, but um, it's as corrupt as they come. And uh, so in this small strip of, of I don't know, maybe uh, 80 to 100 kilometers wide, this little breakaway state which is, uh, of Moldova, um, I got robbed four times by the police as, <laughs> as I was coming through. <laughs> I, I did find out the going rate was 25 US dollars, but uh, you can usually get them down to 15. So um, by the, uh, perhaps it was the fourth time uh, the Blue Light Mafia pulled me over. 
uh, that, that I, uh, I was starting to perhaps uh, not really enjoy my experience that well. And, uh, and um, it, it, uh, I, uh, I, want, I was just feeling pretty down because I was on my own at this stage. And um, well, the funny thing is I, I pulled into, uh, I think the town is Chisinau, which is actually Moldova proper. And I just wanted a place to stay and hide. Um, and, uh, which is not, you know, it's not the bravest, it's not the most adventurous, but, uh, uh, I was, I didn't really know where to stay. And, uh, next thing, uh, 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 this black and Mercedes Benz comes up and, and this real dodgy looking character comes out and then he sees I had Dutch number plates on my motorbike and he asked me where I'm from. I said, I'm from Australia. And, uh, he says, he asked me why I'm doing here with a Dutch bike. And, and then, uh, I told him and it turns out he's a very friendly guy. He told me he had a sister living in Holland and he's asked me where, where I'm going. I said, I'm, I'm looking for a place to stay. So he goes, follow me, follow me. And so I'm following the, I thought, what else could happen to me today? I'm, I mean, it can't be any worse than the rest of them. <laughs> so I'm following this, uh, this dodgy looking guy who looked like a mafia boss from hell. And uh, we're going through Chish now when he comes up to a nice hotel, gives me a hug and uh, tells me uh, as he leaves, he says, be careful of the police. They're worse the criminals than I am. So, <laughs> <laughs> so now that's who you report the crime to. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he didn't even charge me a cent. So the point of that convoluted story was I, ha I was sitting in my hotel room having a couple of beers and uh, just thinking, you know, I, I really could have a different experience. I, I really don't want to dislike Moldova and I, I want to come back here one day and have a positive experience. And then I thought, started thinking, what if I was to be able to meet local bikers? And, and this is how I sort of came at the idea. And I, I thought, well, forums are not a really good idea. Uh, they, they can be good, but, you know, sometimes it's so uh, you have to wait for ages to get a response on, on any post you put. And, you know, the, the information's not always up to date and... Um, you know, it's nice to see the pe people you're talking to. So uh, I came up with this idea and it, and it just got bigger and bigger in my mind. And uh, it got to a point where, where uh, I came up with the idea of motor tour. And then I thought, well, I, I've got to do this. Um, so I left my job and uh, here I am. <laughs> And might I add, too, the other thing, too, is this is not just for dual sport riders or, or for people who are into adventure riding. This is for anybody. It's anybody on two wheels that wants to have the best time on their, on their hobby or their lifestyle, whatever, whichever way to put it, but it, anything uh, motorized on two wheels, you know, or trikes even, you know, but it's, it's for the whole motorcycling community. The idea is it doesn't really matter if it's just for a weekend or, or even a day out, you know, there's something on there that you can use and uh, take advantage of. What does it cost the person to come and sign up? Um, it's 100% free to sign up and to use. The price is right, I think, for, for most people out there who want to sign up for something like this. So a new member just goes in, they sign up, they make a profile for themselves. Their own profile, and then you make a profile for your motorbike as well. So uh, you know, your, your motorbike gets attached to uh, a route or a travel blog uh, and trips that you do, uh, which is pretty cool because then it's like your bike gets its own personality. Yeah, the thing I noticed with this is it seems so much quicker to find people in areas rather than on the forum. You know, you'll post something on the forum and then you might get a response from people. You might not. This you can actually look through the people that are that are on here in these areas. Absolutely. Uh, we have a, you have a search function there and you look on the map. So it's like an interactive map and you can see uh, other Motorturer members uh, in your area or wherever the map goes. If you're looking in Russia, you can find a Russian motorbike rider. Um, you know, it really is quite versatile like that. So there's travel blogs. You've got group chat as well. We also have, um, you can find uh, mechanics. 
uh, other points of interest, uh, and also motorcycle-friendly accommodation. You mentioned to me earlier when we talked uh, about a club page that was coming up. Yes, we have a function uh, that's being released this week. Um, it's uh, where clubs can um, have their own web page within Mototura and they have their own unique URL. The advantage is that you know a lot of club pages, they're expensive to build and to maintain. Uh, but what we do, we, we give this alternative to them and it's a good and fun interactive thing where, you, where clubs can really actively engage their members you know, and they can plan their trips together, they can share their pictures from their trips and, and their days out, their picnic and, and what have you. And you know, it's all the same things, the functions and, uh, with the routes and uh, travel blogs and things. And the idea is just to inject some life into club pages again because I think... Um, Sometimes uh, they do fall apart because they generally rely on one person to keep the information and, and keep the communication going between everyone. Um, if that person's on holiday or something, then everything stops. But what we hope is by giving this platform where everybody can talk and, and engage each other um, in, within the club environment, then you know it's going to keep the club a little bit more vibrant, and other people can see the club, and you can find the club using the search function, and hopefully you know it'll it'll encourage new membership if people can see, hey, this club is really active, they're doing really cool things, um, you know, it it really does raise the exposure of the clubs. You can uh, basically you can, people can follow your trip, you can update it and break it down into chapters. You can upload your, you can incorporate your routes, your POI, and your media as well as your um, as your story. And, and you get this uh, line map, uh, which takes it, which you can share the whole trip on, basically. Right. So each chapter, you can do another route and say, this is my start point and end point in this chapter. And that sort of, um, you know, just uh, people can um, follow your travel blog and they can see where you are, where you last logged in. So what you can do in, in, the, in either the, the route or the travel blog, you can upload a GPX file from your, uh, from your Garmin or TomTom upload it in there and it'll just boom there it'll be on a google map that is so neat to be able to come back from a trip and just upload your your track that you just did and there you've got an entry and you've got it recorded for yourself exactly exactly and when you can also do the same uh the opposite way of course you, can, you know because a lot of most people are more familiar with doing google maps than using uh the gps uh maps like i've got a garmin zumo and if I go I use the Garmin maps, I feel like I need a, a physics degree just to sort of make my way around it. <laughs> but but um, so if I use Google Maps in this in our system, I can I can I can track my route. I can uh, drag the points here and there, and then I just save, hit save and, and convert, and I'll, I'll have a GPX file that I can put straight into my uh, t- uh, into my Garmin. So Ben, where is Motor Tour going to go in the future? Um, look, we. This year, we're going to be uh, releasing a whole lot of cool functions. Uh, the Friend Finder I was telling you about, uh, a trip planner, also a trip tracker. And last but certainly not least, we're, we're going to reduce all these functions and uh, turn it into a mobile app to use on your um, on Android and Apple. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's, that's really exciting. And, and, and hopefully, uh, these things should be released before the summer. You mentioned, Ben, that you're going to be at Daytona Bike Week. Yeah, um, we're really excited. Uh, so we're going out there. We'll, we'll just have a, a stand um, right next to Tombstone Silverworks at 405 Main Street. Uh, we'll be right on the main street there. We'll have a, a place where people can sign up and uh, 
have a chat with us, meet us. Uh, we'll give away some free T-shirts if you're really nice. And, uh, yeah, it, it's just a chance to sort of um, get greater exposure. And, and we really want to introduce ourselves to the U.S. market and, and uh, meet some bikers over there face-to-face. I've been speaking with Ben DeBoer of mototour.com. And, of course, a link to that will be in our show notes. Coming up next, Tiffany Coates, Grand Adventures, Part 2. Now, before we get to Tiffany Coates Part 2, I just want to talk to you for a minute about a special deal we have with Audible.com to get you a free book and get you started on a program that you're probably going to find is one of the most rewarding programs. Audible books are just that. They're books that are read, and they're read usually by actors. Sometimes it's by the author, but not very often. And it's so that you can put your headphones on or you can put it onto your stereo or in your vehicle and just listen, same as you do with a podcast like this, while you go and do something. And the number of books out there to get. Audible's saying now they got 150,000 titles that you can choose from to uh, to listen to. And it's just like reading it. In most cases, it's the same book that you'll buy, the printed version, and read it, except that somebody's doing the reading for you, and it frees you up to do other things. Now, the real great thing about this, especially you're listening to this show, you're likely into travel, you're into motorcycles. Well, there's motorcycle books on there you can get. And these are great books, like by authors like Sam Manicom, for instance, who is one of the top adventure motorcycle riders. Sam's books are available, and if you sign up today through our special program, you can get one of Sam's books absolutely free. You don't pay for the first one. I mean, you can choose any of the 150,000 books they've got on there, but if you sign up for the special deal, it's got to be a new account, so you go on there and you register your new account at uh, audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. So you go on there and you log on, and of course the ARR means Adventure Rider Radio. You fill out the account information. It doesn't charge you. The, The first thing is it does ask you for credit card information, but it does not charge your credit card for that first month. If you don't want it, if you just want to take your free book and cancel, you can do that too. Um, but I think you're going to find that you want to stay with it because Audible books are amazing. And this program, it, you pay a, a monthly fee of, um, I can't remember what it is now, 15 or $20 or something like that per month. And you get a credit each month, which basically means a book. So you go in there and you find a book that you want to download. You download it to your device, whether it's a, an Apple device or an Android device, or you want to do it on your computer or all of them them for that matter. Um, You can do them all and it doesn't cost you any more money. But you download your book and you listen to it and uh, the next month you're free to grab another book. If you want to buy more books than that, they actually give you a discount on that as well for being a member. So this is for new members, for new accounts. Um, If you go and you set up a new account now at Audible trial.com forward slash ARR, you will qualify for this free book uh, to begin with. Check it out. Doesn't cost you anything to do it. Sign up. Then we get the credit for it. You get a free book and you've helped support Adventure Rider Radio. That's audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. And of course, the link is in our show notes on the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Welcome back to part two of Tiffany Coates' Grand Adventures. Now, last week we had the convenience of leaving Tiffany in Timbuktu, which I thought was kind of cool because, well, as she says... It's very dusty. But of course, Tiffany's a world traveler, so being stuck in the middle of Timbuktu, which is to everyone else, the middle of nowhere, well, it's not really that big of a deal. 
Now, when Tiffany started out, you'll remember from last week that, well, she didn't start out riding a bike. She wasn't born on a motorcycle. As a matter of fact, it wasn't that smooth of a beginning for her, which is evident here when Tiffany talks about her experience buying her first motorcycle. We've agreed we're going to buy it, so gave the guy the money and then promptly dropped the bike. But that first experience didn't sour her drive to ride a motorcycle because... Just two months later, that was it. We set off for India. And then as it often does, Tiffany's first trip went to another trip and another trip and another trip. Yeah, that had turned into two and a half years away on the bike. And that was me well and truly hooked on the motorbike travel. And of course, what always comes to mind when you talk about someone who travels a lot is how do you finance it? And she talked about that last week. Never stay in posh hotels, but then I can't really see the point of posh hotels, what you need a TV for and all the other fancy things when I could be camped out beside a river, swimming in the river, enjoying all that, eating local food or cooking for myself. So I travel cheaply, and also when I'm at home, I live quite frugally. Travel by motorbike is my passion, and so that's what I prioritize in my life. That's what I save my money for. Um, I don't have many expensive things going on in my life, but the travel is what I will spend every penny on. Last week when we left Tiffany in Timbuktu, it was no accident. And nor was it an accident when she first found Timbuktu. As I was flying home from South America, and I was thinking, gosh, I've now crossed every continent. And this memory came back to me of when I was 12 years old, looking in an atlas of the world and finding Timbuktu. And I can always remember thinking, wow, Timbuktu. Not just a place name made up by grown-ups to mean a far-off area. I can always remember sort of saying to myself, I'm going to go to Timbuktu one day. I want to go see the camels and the palm trees. I'm going to go there. So literally, as I flew home from South America, I was already getting excited about the fact that I'm going to go to Timbuktu. Don't know if you can get there by motorbike, but I'm going to give it a try. And I did. And now we return to Tiffany Coates' Grand Adventures, part two, where we left her off last week in Timbuktu. And what happened after Timbuktu? I travelled back... I then thought, oh, right, okay. I've covered all the goals that I want to see. And then I was watching TV one day and watched an episode of Only Fools and Horses. Don't know if you're familiar with that one. It's a very British comedy series. And one character called Del Boy turns to his brother, who comes across as not quite as bright as Del Boy, perhaps. And he says, here, Rodney, where you been? Out of Mongolia? And that just struck me, that phrase. Where have you been? Outer Mongolia? And I thought, yeah, actually, I haven't been to Outer Mongolia either. I think I fancy going there. So, yeah, again, pull out the atlas, look up Outer Mongolia, realise, OK, that's quite a long way from the UK. Um, and then I went to a Horizons Unlimited meeting, the big UK meet, which is the biggest one in the world, and um, started asking around there, trying to find people who'd been to Mongolia, what route they took and what they thought of it. So really it mushroomed from there. So I actually managed probably more research for that trip than for any other trip, because I quickly decided I wanted to go through Central Asia. That's all the stands. Um, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan. There you go. So some some tricky riding, um, some very, very tricky bureaucracy as far as the visas are concerned. 
um, but also one of the most rewarding areas you could ever ride. The Pamir Highway is one highlight, and although I'm not usually one known for my appreciation of the cultural delights, Samarkand in Uzbekistan, where Kublai Khan had his palace, and the oh, the incredible mosques and the registry are just the most amazing sights to see. So lots of that and lots of deserts as well. By this point, I've decided, you know what? I really enjoy deserts. I've just about cracked the sand with my bike, so I can ride my bike fully loaded through sand, and it's all one big adventure. After Mongolia, where do we go from here? As I was leaving Mongolia, basically there's two roads in or out of Mongolia, and I took the northern road straight up to Russia. And as I reached Russia, I should have turned left to head home because that's the direction of Europe. But um, turning the other way, well, the Pacific Ocean is only 2,000 miles from there, give or take a few miles. And it struck me that I had come from Land's End, which is on the Atlantic coastline. So I'd traveled from the Atlantic coast and it would make a great symmetry to this journey if I arrived on the Pacific Ocean coastline and in the meantime, crossing the biggest landmass on the planet. So I thought, oh, yeah. So I turned right. I rode the last 2,000 miles through Siberia where it got quite chilly at that point and got to Vladivostok, which is a fairly large Russian port city, very busy one like a lot of ports are, but also quite charming as well. And I found out there's a ferry there that goes to Japan. And it struck me, well, how cool would that be? Go to Japan by ferry. I don't think many people do that. So I bought a ticket, cleared customs, which is easier said than done with Russia, and wheeled my bike onto the ferry. And 48 hours later, found myself in the land of the rising sun. Not a wrong turn, but a change in directions at the T of a road sends you off on another adventure. It did. And Japan had never been a country that I'd felt a desire to see or travel in. I prefer the more remote places, places that are still developing, whereas Japan really is possibly the most developed country in the world. So that was a bit of a shock to my system. But it also meant that I enjoyed it so much. I had no expectations about it. I had no idea how mountainous it was what great riding it would provide, and the people were just incredible. Nothing was too much trouble, and even when they couldn't speak English, they would still do their very best to communicate with me and to help me out. It's a very humbling experience. And actually, Japan can be quite easy to travel in, even if you don't speak Japanese. Um, You are free to camp wherever you want. I could roll up to the park. Every town had a park. I could just roll up to the park, put my tent up and camp out. And by law, I'm allowed to. There's lots of very good free public toilets. So I could go and wash and brush up in the toilets and then take my tent down in the morning and um, carry on to the next place. I was also very lucky in that I was introduced to the network of Japanese motorcycle travelers. Now, some of the Japanese travelers I have met do the most astounding riding. Without being able to speak a word of any foreign language, they have ventured to the far-flung corners of the planet. So there'll be times when, for example, I was 
crossing the Nullarbor Plain in Australia, and there was a Japanese guy on a 125 going the other way who didn't speak a word of English. So we had very limited communication, but he was really enjoying it. And then the number of Japanese travellers who have done very long trips, whether it's four, five, six, seven years or more, they will just take off. I think it's something to do with being an island nation that is quite isolated, that when they do get their motorbikes overseas, they just keep going and don't stop. I was in Japan for a few weeks, about six weeks maybe, a bit less. And um, by that time I realised, oh, actually it's going to be far too cold to go home through Siberia. So I thought I'm going to have to come up with a plan to get home. As usual, I'm running out of money. I think I'd been away about seven months at that point, maybe, mm, no, maybe nearer nine months. And so I headed into Tokyo. I found a shipping agent and I just laid the facts bare. I said, I'm female, English, and I'm traveling on my own. I haven't got much money left. I've got a motorbike and I'm trying to get home. Where's the cheapest place to send my motorbike to? And they responded with Long Beach, California. So I thought, oh, I've never been to Long Beach. Okay, why not? So that day, left my motorbike with them and um, sent Thelma off on a ship crossing the Pacific Ocean. And again, I'd asked if I could go on the ship. And as always, the answer is no. Um, so I flew across and was in California for a while. For people who don't travel or haven't done much traveling, it all sounds bizarre. I mean, to just decide that all of a sudden, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to California. How do you do that? Isn't there problems with your visa and all the other things you have to arrange? So then, I mean, by this point in my life, there's internet and stuff like that. Um, yes, but as a British person, I can get an electronic visa online. So I went online and got the electronic visa sorted out. Yeah, and you get that pretty much immediately, right? Yeah, yeah. So you're back in North America again, and and with no real plans. I mean, I, I didn't really see that as a shortcut to get home, but but okay. So you're in North America, and and you're gonna have to find your way home. How do you do that? Okay, so I was sort of concocting a bit of a plan. Once I'd heard that Long Beach, California, would be the cheapest place to send my bike, I then sort of concocted a plan of okay, send the bike over. And then I'll ride across America as quickly as possible to New York, where it's the cheapest spot to ship home from. So then I'll find a ship and send my bike home across the Atlantic. And as quite often happens with shipping, particularly shipping by sea, um, things don't go to plan and the ship gets delayed. And it just gave me a bit more thinking time as well anyway. And I realized, gosh, this is now December. It's getting cold. And I haven't got much money. And I'm about to race across America in winter, having to cover lots of miles every day and not and without much money. So I'm not going to be stopping in nice places. And I don't have the time to look around. And I suddenly realized, you know what? That sounds a pretty cuckoo idea to me. I know what. Let's scrap that plan. The travellers that I'd been in contact with and I was staying with in L.A., they'd emailed me and said, oh, you're coming over to California, come and stay. They offered to store my motorbike. And so once Thelma arrived, I left her with them and I flew on home. I worked at home in England for the winter and then I returned in spring 
with the plan to pick up the motorbike and just leisurely make my way over to the East Coast and ship home from there. Well, that's a nice plan. Looking at your blog, I don't think that's what happened. You've been doing your homework, haven't you? (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so I was on the plane flying back over to America and I remember looking out of the window at one point and looking at this vast landscape below me and it was trees as far as the eye could see, lots and lots of lakes, no sign of any buildings or people and this yellow line just running through this landscape and I realised it's some kind of dirt road and it just seemed to go on for hundreds of miles and I just thought, wow, what is this place? So I looked up on the information screen on the back of the seat in front of me for the flight info, which it shows the little model airplane making its way over the landmass, and it said Labrador. And I just thought, wow, I want to ride that road. So when I landed in Los Angeles, my friends picked me up, and they said, okay, you've come to pick up Thalma, and now you're riding to New York. That's right, isn't it? And I went, well, actually, I want to go to Labrador. And they said, where the hell's Labrador? <laughs> Honestly, it's quite interesting how few Americans knew where or what Labrador was. And I said, it's Canada, northeast Canada, not as far north as you can go. So on that eastern side, closest landmass to Greenland. And if there was a ferry, I'd be going to Greenland as well. However, I don't think there is. But you know what? I'm going to go up there and I'm going to ride across Labrador. And my timing couldn't have been better. And that's timing on two counts. Number one, actually being awake and looking out of my window in daylight and spotting Labrador in the first place. And number two, finding out that the Trans-Labrador Highway had literally only just opened that year. And that's a thousand mile gravel track, which was the one I'd seen from the airplane window. And that led right across Labrador through communities that previously had only been accessible by boat. So, yeah, I was really lucky with that. I was very pleased. You gotta love it when somebody plans a trip from an airplane seat looking out a window. I mean, that's just fantastic. I, I really think you're you're ranking way up there on my list for um for adventurers. Adventurers or just wacky people. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> what what's a, is there a difference? I mean, is there a delineation point between the two? Oh, do you know what? I think you're probably quite right there. There is quite a correlation between people venturing into the unknown and perhaps a degree of wackiness as well. Well, they're paving that road soon. I, well, I think they're already doing it in Labrador. Yeah. So that experience that you had is something that um, people in the future won't be able to do. Gosh, wow. Because um, I just thought they maybe wouldn't be able to pave it because of the extreme weather. They have winter for so many months of the year. It And I'm pleased to report that the experience of riding the Trans-Labrador Highway more than surpassed itself. It really was um, one of the most remote places I've been and just fantastic. I know some people say they find it monotonous, but I just found it enthralling to be traveling there. And of course, you know, I had my usual sort of adventures along the way. I was racing against Hurricane, was it Hurricane Eagle that year? That was racing up from the eastern seaboard and I was coming in from the west. And then I got chased by wolves. I mean, most of the other travellers I met said, 
wolves didn't even see any and I said no I got chased by them and I did manage to get a photo of them as well um and people have confirmed yep those are wolves so had a lot of adventures it was yeah some very special people living there as well and some incredible places how many other trips have you done wow it sort of depends how you're going to count them um do you want me to list them well, I'm I'm sort of curious. I mean, because a lot, I guess a lot of your trips, you're starting out on one thing, and I mean, as we can clearly hear, and you, something catches your eye, a, a glint of something, a track, and you're off on another adventure. So I guess a lot of them sort of string together. Yes, yes, I suppose they do a bit. Um, so yeah, so that simple ride back across from California to New York actually turned into three months on the road, doing ten thousand miles just in Canada, because of course. I couldn't do things in a straight line. I had friends to catch up with in Seattle, friends in Vancouver. That was Grant and Susan Johnson. And I know you've had them on the show as well, haven't you? Yeah, Grant's sort of a regular. Yeah, oh, I bet he is. Hello to Grant if he's listening. So I had them to go and visit as well in Van- in the Vancouver area. And so then I thought, well, I do like islands. And I've been over to Vancouver Island previously, but I hadn't been by motorbike before. So I rode Thelma over onto Vancouver Island and set off. So my, the Trans-Canada bit of that trip started on the west coast of Vancouver Island. I can't remember the name of the place. I was just camped out on the beach. Um, didn't realize quite how dangerous the cougars are, but I still didn't see any. Um, and get across the whole of Canada, um, taking in the Trans-Labrador and ended up in St. John's over in Halifax. No, I was in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and St. John's, oh, Newfoundland. Yes, in Newfoundland. Before then eventually getting down to the east coast of the U.S. and shipping. Well, I was going to, actually, I was going to ship home from New York, but then I got asked to come back and give some talks. And I said, oh, I haven't got time now. I, for whatever reason, I was not heading on an unlimited time scale. So I said, actually, I've got to get back home to the U.K., so I said to people, you know what, I'll just leave my motorbike over here again and um, I'll come back next year, give the talks and pick up my bike then. So that's basically what I did. I smuggled the motorbike into Mexico and left Thelma in someone's sitting room. Again, that's a real trust thing. They told me it's based on, um, yeah, I put out a plea on Horizons Unlimited, needed somewhere to leave my motorbike. These people responded. And so I turned up, but I happened to turn up when they were away and they told me where to find the key. And so I lived in their house for two days and then said a sad farewell to Thelma and got the bus back up to Tijuana and back to the States and flew home from there. And then it was a year before I was reunited with Thelma. So how do you smuggle a bike into Mexico? No, no, never mind. We don't, we don't want to know that. <laughs> I'm a little confused. <laughs> I'm a little confused with this last trip. You mean to say you landed in California, you went all the way over to do the, the Labrador Road, and then you went back to the West Coast and back to the East Coast again? Um, okay, so yes, basically. So I came down that east side, um, and so I had some friends to visit in Louisiana, I couldn't leave Thelma in America because she was reaching the end of her 12 months import. So I thought, well, I'll take her down to Mexico. And then I found out you can only have a vehicle, a foreign registered vehicle in Mexico for six months. And I knew there was no guarantee I'd be back within six months. So I had to dodge. Well, you can cross the border. Okay. That's not a problem. 
Um, so I made sure I got Thelma stamped out of the US. And then going into Mexico, I just didn't mention that she wasn't an American vehicle. And then there's a 300 kilometer duty free zone in northern Mexico. And you can bring a vehicle into there without any extra paperwork. Unfortunately, the people I was leaving Thelma with um, live about 60 kilometers beyond the duty free zone. So I had to dodge the federales and the roadblocks and they sent me instructions on how to cross country on the back roads to avoid the roadblocks where they would check. So yeah, it's quite straightforward really. That's how you smuggle a motorbike into Mexico. And I arrived <laughs> in this little town and had directions for finding the house and there was the key under the mat and just moved in for a couple of days. <laughs> That's good information for those who are wondering how to do that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, it worked for me. And a year later, you come back to get your bike. And of course, we know because you still have the bike that it was there. Oh, well, yes, yes. No, there's, there's, the bike was definitely there. But in the meantime, a friend had gone and collected Thelma for me and sort of smuggled her back into the US. So that was really handy. Yeah, so that's... <laughs> so you've got a whole operation going here. I mean, you dropped it off yourself. You had a friend pick it up and smuggle it back. Yeah, and she dropped Thelma off in Arizona for me. So then when I flew back into Arizona... Um, I flew over to take part in the Overland Expo down in Flagstaff. That's held in the middle of May each year. Um, so I'd flown over to take part in that and to give a talk. And my kind hosts there had stored Thelma until I'd come back. And I'm willing to bet that when you got there, you just didn't go to that show and go home. Am I wrong? <laughs> so then that turned into a sort of three-month really a speaking tour really the word was spreading oh well there's this english woman riding around on her motorbike and hey that motorbike well thelma had probably done 170,000 miles by that point so like hey she's on her bumblebee it's done 170,000 miles and you know what she'll talk to anyone about her travels so i sort of got hooked into this three-month speaking tour where um I was just greeted everywhere with big smiles and hosted and talked to people about my travels. Now, what do you do for a living? I mean, I know that you're working as a guide and is that full time? No, no. And I wouldn't want to do it full time. Um, I think if I was guiding full time, it just turns into another job then. And sometimes you resent a job because it can take you away from doing other things. So I have my bread and butter work, which is the youth work here in the UK. And then I do a number of trips each year. It might be, say, three trips a year where I'll go overseas and lead different groups of people to different locations. Oh, that's your guiding is three times a year? Yeah. That's amazing. I, I can imagine that anybody would want to go with you because, I mean, I, I think, you know, when you have someone who plans a trip, like I said, looking out the window of an airplane saying, I want to go there, and then the map on the on the screen in the airplane, I think that really says something. you got something unique there. Well, they do say that the evenings are not boring when they're traveling with me. <laughs> yes, I would imagine there's a wealth of stories. I mean, we've quickly skipped across all of these, you know, these, these trips sounding like they happened in the blink of an eye. But I mean, there are so many stories wrapped up in here. And, uh, and some of those are, are on your website. But if someone wants to delve in, is there more? Is there a book that you put out? Um, no, I haven't put out a book yet. I I sometimes feel like I'm too busy or I'm just enjoying the traveling too much. I've got 70,000 words written about that first journey to India. Um, 
I just need to do a bit of a rewrite and get it edited and then put it out there. But the reason I'd be getting a book done at all is to just show people you really don't need to be famous. You don't need a whole heap of money. I mean, Becky and I had very little money when we set off, £2,500 between us. Um, you don't need to be a rocket scientist. I mean, gosh, if I could do a trip like this with minimal knowledge about motorbikes and maintenance um, and just a desire to learn whilst on the road and also the fact that women can do it. People are so used to, oh, yeah, yeah, this chap's done this and that bloke's done that. But actually, you don't need to be male to do these trips. You can be female as well and, if anything, get even more out of travelling by motorbike. Yeah, you've made some very good points. Um, uh, you know, the one being the acclimatization. I think that is an excellent point uh, of getting out there and learning while you go and sort of acclimatizing yourself as you're going. Do you find that you have to handle some things differently because you're a female traveling on your own? Gosh, well, I probably handle the unwanted advances quite differently from the blokes. Um, I wouldn't really know because I don't know what it's like to travel as a bloke. I mean, the one advantage they have is they can wee standing up. So uh, before now, I've used my black Shador in Iran, spread around me like my own Portaloo in the middle of the desert because there were just no conveniences available. Um, so, yeah, just being a bit creative around the alfresco toilet stops that I encounter. Um, what else do I do differently from the blokes? Well, I've just got a, a different approach. You know, I just go in with a smile and expect people to like me um, at the very least, really, and hopefully they're going to help. But if not, I'll just move on to the next village and get some help there. And, you know, as you're saying that people should realize that they can go, they can do these trips. I mean, I know as Grant Johnson always says that people often over-prepare thinking that they need to pack everything, including all their food. But you have to realize that everywhere you go, there's people. If there's people, there's usually vehicles and there's vehicles and they need the same things that you need and you're going to be able to find them there. So you don't have to pack everything and prepare everything before you go. Oh, definitely not. Um People are always surprised when they hear that I've got the standard fuel tank on my bike. That's 22 litres. I can do 235 miles. And, you know, I've never needed a big tank except three places in the world where I've carried a little bit of extra fuel. And that's up in northern Alaska, the last stretch of the ice road from Coldfoot up to Dead Horse, Alaska. I carried few extra litres there because it literally is 230 miles of no fuel. In fact, 230 miles of nothing except frozen tundra waste. And crossing the Sahara, I carried extra fuel between Nuadabu and Nuakshot in Mauritania. And then also in the Kizikul Desert, which is between Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, I carried a bit of extra fuel there. Otherwise, I never needed to carry any extra fuel there. You know, there basically were settlements where I could get fuel, whether it's in a Coke bottle or in an old vegetable oil bottle. Again, that's a bit of blind faith that, A, it's real fuel, and B, it's not going to wreck the engine, but it's always worked for me. And you can put fuel in anything. You can put fuel in a two-liter Coke bottle, like you said, or, or anything to carry it. It's not like you have to have a designated container. This stuff is available everywhere. Yeah, but that's how they sell it. Mm-hmm.
So there's, you know, obviously no fuel pumps, not even jerry cans. They've just got this line of old Coke bottles. You buy it from them and that's their way of measuring it as well. So you, yep, I'll have two large bottles and a small one, please. That should be five litres of Coke, but actually it's five litres of fuel. And then that's what you pay for. And are there some things, though, some pieces of gear or kit that you consider essential? For me, it's always important to be self-sufficient on the road. So certainly having my tent, my sleeping bag and my thermarest. Although in the early days when Becky and I set off, we were very strict with ourselves about what we could take as luggage. And we didn't have sleeping mats. We just used to sleep on our bike jackets at night. I look back on those days and think how hardcore that was because I certainly don't go anywhere without my thermarest now. Maybe it's old age. So for me, it's important to be self-sufficient. And so that would change my journeys a lot if I wasn't able to be self-sufficient. But what else would I consider essential? Well, there's always the things for doing repairs. So it's gaffer tape, um, gaffer tape and cable ties. I think that's, and then my Swiss army knife to help me out as well. Gaffer tape, cable ties and a Swiss army knife. That's it. And you're set. That's right. Got me out of many a problem, those have. Tiffany, tell us about this trip you're running, Ladies in Ladakh, that is um, just for women. Basically, with Ladies in Ladakh, it's the only um, all-female tour in the world that goes overseas. Um, And I, well, I was helped to set it up, but um, whenever I give a talk about my travels, there's always one or two women come up to me. Well, quite a few people come up to me at the end to sort of ask more questions and all the rest of it. And amongst them, there's always one or two women who say, wow, I feel so inspired about what you've done with your life and where you've traveled. And I'd love to do that, but I don't have the unlimited time that you seem to have. By the way, I've made a career out of giving up my job over the years. <laughs> um, so I, they say to me, they don't have the unlimited time that I have. They don't have the nerve to travel on their own. And also they're saying, you know, this wild camping, that wouldn't be for me. It's not comfortable enough. So now if they wanted to have a taste of adventure, for this is the second year I've been running it, is Ladies in Ladakh, which is um, women riders only. And it's traveling through the Himalayas in northern India. Most incredible adventure. We ride the Royal Enfields, which are a lot of fun to ride. It's the new generation ones. Electric start, fuel injection, so they cope really well with the altitude and incredibly reliable. So we have a lot of fun. We ride them for a thousand miles through the Himalayas. The next Ladies in Ladakh is setting off on the 1st of August from Delhi. So any women interested in coming and riding Ladakh, meet us in Delhi. For those who want to find out more about you, where do they find you? If you Google my name, Tiffany Coates, there's quite a lot of information comes up. Even my mum is surprised. Not that she ever goes on a computer unaccompanied. So my website comes up, which is tiffanystravels.co.uk. Because I'm in Britain, I don't get a .com, I've got .co.uk. People can follow my travels and my blogs through that. And also just keep an eye out for me. I present at various events. Sometimes I'm lucky enough to be overseas when I'm presenting. So I'll be at the Overland Expo in the middle of May. 
And then in late June, I'm going to be at Horizons Unlimited in Ireland, up in Enniskillen. And also, you might just see me on the road someday. So, yeah, if you ever see a not very tall English woman with plaits, because guess what? My hair has grown back. I've always got my hair <laughs> plaited. And on a yellow and black BMW with a chick's kick ass sticker on the side of it. You know what? That's probably me that you've seen. <laughs> That's great. Well, Tiffany, thank you very much for sharing at least a tiny bit of your story with us anyway, because I know there is so much more and, and people are going to have to track you down to find out more stories. But there's probably, um, well, there's a lifetime of stories there. But thank you very much, Tiffany. We'll have to get you back again sometime. Okay, yes. Thank you very much, Jim, because we didn't even set on to the stampeding elephants being chased by the Nicaraguan mafia and any of those minor incidents. Thank you. And there's a good reason why you need to stay tuned to Adventure Rider Radio in the future, where you'll hear more about Tiffany's adventures next time we have her on. I've been speaking with Tiffany Coates, and you can find out more about Tiffany by visiting her website at tiffanystravels.co.uk, or you can drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and look at the show notes. Coming up next, we've got Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited talking about packing lightly. You know what it's like, you're packing your bike up, you can't get everything in. I mean, let's face it, no matter how big your bags are, no matter how many bags you have on, everyone has the same problem. And just answer yourself this question in your head. After you've packed up all your gear and you've got all your bags piled up, have you ever stopped by the grocery store to pick up some food and find you can't fit it in? Well, this is for you. Grant, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks. It's good to be back. Grant, some time ago, you and I talked about this, and you made the point to me that um, people often pack up and go on these trips not realizing that there are things to buy out there. In other words, there's going to be no fuel, there's going to be no food, that they're going to be in these remote places that they can't find anything. Can you elaborate on that conversation? That's one of the, the things where people tend to go wrong. People think, oh, I need to take everything as if there aren't people out there and there aren't stores and shops and things available. Um, I know one couple who headed off and they both had two riding suits, a winter suit and a summer suit. And I said, what are you doing? Well, if the weather's bad or it gets cold, we'll switch to the winter suit. You're crazy. You, you just don't need all that much stuff. For starters, you work with layers and if it's cold, um, I can think of you go to Bolivia, for instance, South America, it's hot and everything's lovely. And then you go up to the high altitude in Bolivia and it's really cold there. But guess what? People live there and you can go into any shop or just about anywhere and you'll find that they sell sweaters. Buy a sweater, put it on. And that's good enough. You don't, you don't need a huge amount of gear. You don't need multiple layers of everything. Um, you should be able to layer up with what you have to be able to ride in any sensible riding temperature. It's carrying any more than that. That's just crazy. Perhaps some of this comes from the, the thought process that a lot of people have, that you have to have the, the best quality gear. So what, what would be that approach? Because I can see someone saying that, well, the reason I'm taking both these suits, because they're both excellent, they're both Gore-Tex and the, the highest quality. Do we need that? Absolutely not. There's lots of people who've gone around the world many times, you know, for the last almost 100 years, and they're using horrible gear. I mean, you think about somebody that went around the world um, 
Fulton in 1932 went around the world. And what did he have? He had a shirt. He had a pair of shorts, a pair of long pants, and an ordinary hat, like hat, not helmet. And guess what? He went around the world. And he made it, and he was okay, and he didn't die. So, yes, you can. It, it's nice to have good gear, but you can always adjust the gear. You can always get what's good enough. You can always add another layer. You can always get something that will get you going. Uh, think about when you first started riding. You probably didn't have all the wonderful riding gear. You probably started riding in, in jeans and a T-shirt. Yeah, you can still do that. It's not recommended, and it's good to have proper gear, and it's good to have gear that's warm and dry and comfortable and well-ventilated and all kinds of stuff. But it's not necessary. It's not required. You, you can always adjust. Fulton, he, he went at a time when the motorcycle was not even close to being reliable like they are nowadays. Tires, I mean, the grief that he would have went through with flat tires, etc. So it was a whole different ballgame. So really, we're very spoiled right now. Hugely spoiled. And one other thing to think about, the bike he went around the world on had three, count them, one, two, three horsepower such a different experience than what we're having today. So I think we get caught up in that, thinking that we have to have the latest, greatest. So if we're going on a trip, how do we pare it down? How do we say, okay, I do want to have some good equipment with me and I don't want to take everything. How do we get rid of the fluff? (laughs) That's the biggest, hardest, number one problem that everybody has. The The problem that everybody runs into is you go into either a camping store or a bike shop and you see all this stuff there, all kinds of wonderful equipment and neat camping gear and all this stuff. And you think, oh, I got to have that. I got to have that. I got to have that. Just because it exists and just because somebody made it doesn't mean you got to have it. It's amazing how little you can get away with. Um, I see all the time people with huge loads. I, I couldn't tell you the number of times I hear people say, I didn't even make it to the ferry before I had to stop and to unload some stuff because the bike was just unmanageable. It's, it's common. And probably the number one phrase that everybody says about a month out is, I just sent another box of stuff home that I thought I needed and discovered I didn't. <laughs> yeah. And notice the word, another box. If there's a rule of thumb, what would the rule of thumb be? Well, you've got all your gear that you're considering taking. How do you sort it? How do you sort it? Less, 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 less. Everything has to have multiple multiple uses, and you need far less clothing than you thought you could possibly get away with. Um, we get along with two pairs of pants and three shirts, and guess what? That's it. You don't need any more than that. You know, the usual a few changes of underwear, a few pairs of socks. Um, make sure it's all synthetic. And my complete clothing kit fits into a small duffel that's I don't know, about 18 inches long by about, let me think, about, must be about 8 inches in diameter. That's it. That's all my clothing. That's everything. Not including riding gear, of course. But you don't need a lot. It's amazing how little you can get away with. And Susan's is about the same. And that's a, that goes back to what you were saying as well. You're riding in places where there are stores and, and things to buy, so you can buy things along the way. I remember uh, I had uh, Rene Cormier on here, and I remember he mentioned something that was really sort of stuck at me, and we put it in the year roundup uh, as well. He's, he said that, you know what, when you leave North America, for instance, no one cares what you're wearing for an outfit. No one cares about your laptop, what, what model it is or anything, or your bike for that <laughs> matter. It just doesn't matter. So if you, you buy some local clothing, that's going to suffice and save you from taking this massive pile on your motorcycle. Yeah, and 
and stuff wears out eventually. And guess what? You can replace it. It's all available. Camping equipment, it's, it's all replaceable. You know, you don't have to have the very best tent. If your tent wears out, starts to leak, guess what? You can buy another one. And uh, you can probably go through three or four cheap tents in replacement for one really, really good tent. You know, the perfect gear doesn't exist. It's either the, the best stuff is way too expensive and the, the really, really, really cheap stuff doesn't last up more than a couple of nights. But somewhere in between, there's a happy medium. You know? And it's all flexible and it's all adjustable. And you will find that as you go that your understanding and your thinking and your requirements will change so that what you thought was perfect at the beginning really isn't quite the best thing for what you want, whether it's the best tent or not, it's your, your idea about what is perfect changes very much. Now, of course, some of your experience, you could pack no problem, probably, you know, immediately uh, to go and you'd be all set with a, a light pack. But for someone else who's going through it, do you recommend that they, they sort of sort through it? Um, you mentioned multiple uses, sort through it and then just keep sorting through it until you get down to the smallest possible denomination? Yeah, it's going to take a few rounds. And probably the number one thing where people tend to go wrong is they spend so much time preparing and preparing and preparing that the day before they have to leave, they start loading the bike up and they've never loaded the bike before. They've never ridden with all the gear. They think, well, I've been out for a ride and I know what I'm doing and I've got all my stuff and it's down to the absolute minimum, but they haven't actually packed it and gone away for the weekend with the actual exact load that they're planning on taking on a big trip. And that's where you really find out what works and what doesn't work and how much is too much. So the shakedown trip is imperative. Yeah, you'd you'd have to load up, go out, spend a weekend or a week or two weeks or whatever it is to figure out what works and what doesn't. Yeah, and just being able to get it all on the bike. It's absolutely amazing the amount of stuff that people load up. Um, I saw a picture just, I was looking at just the other day. One guy... Full saddlebags, full top box, and four large Ortlieb duffel bags. Wow. Four. Yeah. It was, it's incomprehensible the amount of stuff he's got in there. And this is a brand new 1200GS. I mean, this guy's just spent a bucket of money on all this stuff. And I'll bet you all the gear in those duffel bags is full. But it's way, way, way more than you could possibly need. I mean, we, we traveled around the world two up with no external bags. And we were carrying... 300 rolls of film, three cameras, large lenses, a tripod, and we got it all onto one bike. Two up. Two up. So how does one guy need four duffel bags full of stuff on top of the regular saddlebags and top box? There's just something wrong about what, how he's packing. What about weight distribution when you're packing? I mean, you were just mentioning that picture of the, the guy with the bike packed up. As a matter of fact, I'll, I was going to mention to you that a simple search on the internet for videos on packing your motorcycle for an adventure, you'll see all kinds of people standing there packing their bikes the day they're going and having yep. trouble exactly what you're saying. They cannot exactly. get everything on there. So what about weight distribution? How do you do that? Number one is if it's heavy, put it forward and low. You've got to get that weight right up to the front as best you can. Um, I really like pockets on the knees or on the t- in front of the knees or on the tank to get some of that heavy stuff up forward and down low as best you can. Um, if you're putting stuff into your saddlebag, the heavy things go to the very front of the saddlebag, the lightest stuff at the very back of the saddlebag. Heavy stuff does not go in the top box. That's, that's the basic rules. 
And clearly, if you just think of it, you know, when you're loading up all that weight on the back of the bike, um, it's not designed for having that weight, regardless of the panniers that you put on there. It's the weight distribution on the bike that ends up lifting the weight off the front wheel. Oh, yeah. I've had a bike loaded so that uh, every time you touch the clutch, pulling away from a stoplight, it's all you can do to keep the front end on the ground. That's just plain wrong. You've got to get that balance better. Don't forget your passenger is almost sitting on the axle as it is. And anything you put behind the passenger is just a big lever lifting the front end off the ground, which means that when you go into a corner, there's very little loading on the front tire, which means your traction's poor. You mentioned to me before about uh, camping gear and how everything has the, the double duty. Uh, what, is, what is your camping gear setup? Um, well, we have a pair of sleeping bags, and they're not the usual ones that you zip together side by side. What it is is ones that open out, and there's one thin one and one thick one, and they go one on top of the other. So if it's really cold, the thick one goes on top, and if it's really warm, the thin one goes on top. And that makes a big difference, being able to have that kind of flexibility, rather than you've only got this one big heavy sleeping bag, and then when it's hot, what do you do? You know, it's too cold. Um, I think that's very important. We also use the air mattress type with downfill mattresses. They make a huge difference in comfort. They're very lightweight, very compact. They're probably a quarter of the size of what we headed off with in 1987. So that makes a big difference, makes it even smaller. Uh, We're thinking actually right now of setting up for another trip we're going to do. We're heading on a trip in probably two years now for a short time, not long, but fairly a few months. And we're figuring out what is the differences between what we headed off with in 1987 versus what we would head off with now. And that's going to be a very interesting discussion. We're going to be putting that on the website as well. So we invite people to come and suggest what's the best, what's the easiest, what's the lighter and smaller and more compact. And even weight-wise, I mean, if you're just talking about that, I mean, compared to, I'll bet you took uh, probably solid mats when you left on your first trip. No, what we had was the Thermarest, standard Thermarest mattress. And they're pretty bulky. I mean, a Thermarest is, I don't know, 30 inches wide or something like that, and about probably five or six inches in diameter in those days. And now the one we've got is, well, it's about twice the length of my hand and not much bigger in diameter. That's pretty good. Yeah. A huge difference. Yeah. It's about a quarter. And some of them fold in half, too, so they get down very, very tiny. Yeah. Let's talk about, as, as we're going through your gear, let's talk about stove. What do you do for a camp stove? There's a great debate about this, about taking a, a <laughs> stove that burns the same fuel you're burning, etc. Yeah, I would definitely go for something that burns what you've got in the gas tank. You're carrying this massive reserve of fuel, so go for that, a stove that'll burn that. Um, the MSR Whisper Light or the International are both pretty good. Coleman makes a multi-fuel stove that's good. Uh, some people like it better than the MSR. It's kind of a personal preference thing. But uh, you, trying to carry gas canisters, for instance, forget it in South America. You can't find them anywhere except maybe Santiago, maybe Buenos Aires. That's it. And in Africa, no chance. You're also limited with um, with any sort of gas canister. You don't have a clue how much or very little clue how much fuel you have left, and you can end up getting stuck, and then you're going to have to find an alternative. Whereas with your fuel, you, you're unlimited. Yeah, what happens with the canisters is people always carry a spare, so you're always carrying two. That's even worse. Yeah. So more bulk and more weight. What about um, your dishes? Uh, we're very simple, very rudimentary. It's literally two plastic bowls and plastic knife and fork. That's it. 
That's all you need. Oh, and two plastic cups. That is getting down to the, the nitty-gritty. Yeah. And, of course, you can always substitute, can't you? I mean, cups can be replaced as you go along. You can buy a sure. water bottle and cut it off if you had to. Yeah, I can't even remember where we bought these plastic bowls. They might have been in Africa, for instance. I can't even remember. But we've had them for a long time. They're very simple. Um, they do the job. No matter what you're eating, it can actually go into a bowl. It doesn't need to be on a plate. So you start throwing away a couple of plates, and you re- reduce your bulk and weight and complexity right away. One utensil does everything, and one pot does everything. Sure, you may, not, you may have a two-course dinner plan, but guess what? While you're eating one, you can cook the other. And um, what about when it comes to foul weather gear? Because that's one thing that really tends to bulk things up. You've got your, your booties that cover your feet and keep them dry. You've got your, your pants and your jacket. What are you doing about that? That's one of those really, really tough questions. And I think there is no perfect answer. And a lot of it's personal preference and personal opinion. We've used the Rucker riding suits, which we liked a lot, which have a Gore-Tex liner. And when it rains, you put the Gore-Tex liner in, or if it's cold, you put the liner in. The only catch with that is you're riding down the highway in the middle of Europe, and it's starting to rain, and guess what? you got to pull over to the highway, take your pants off, and put the liner in. Susan doesn't like that. (laughs) (laughs) So that's an issue. However, it's very lightweight and very compact, and the Gore-Tex is kept clean. The problem with jackets that have the Gore-Tex built in as part of the laminate is that the Gore-Tex gets dirty and sweaty from you sweating all the time. And the reason Gore-Tex leaks is because it's full of your body oil. The oil is a a surfactant which allows the water to pass right through the Gore-Tex. That's why it leaks, because it's dirty from you. So you have to wash it a lot more often to keep it waterproof. And of so course, when people, when people are washing it, though, a lot of them are throwing it in and throwing some soap in, um, and then you've got a problem as well, don't you? Yeah, you absolutely have to use the correct Gore-Tex soap. If you don't use, uh, like, Tech Wash. Tech Wash is the stuff you have to use, and there is virtually nothing else. If you use an ordinary laundry detergent, you've got to rinse it about 10 times. Otherwise, it's going to leak, because the soap will really make it leak. Um, we're using the Touratech riding suits right now, mm-hmm. and they're a, a two-layer suit, which is the, the main suit that you wear all the time. is not waterproof. There's no Gore-Tex. It breathes good ventilation, um, very nice on a hot day, good on a medium day, not warm enough on a cold day. But then you wear the outer jacket, which looks like your standard three-layer Gore-Tex laminate jacket. And you put that on top, and same with the pants, and guess what? It's really warm and really, really, really dry. Now, in the Rucka suit that we used to use with the inner liner and the um, Tourtech suit, we've had them both in major downpours, absolute bucketing downpours, and they've both never leaked a drop. So a good quality suit with good Gore-Tex that's clean, and you're, there's this method of keeping it clean because you don't wear it all the time, is actually completely waterproof, and I trust it implicitly. It works just great, but it's got to be clean. What about booties um, or waterproof boots? Yeah, that's a tough one. I used to use totes, which were a, a rubber over boot, and they worked great, but that was in the days when boots just plain leaked because all they were was leather. Um, a good Gore-Tex boot today, a modern boot, should be waterproof, and the trick is that you don't trust the Gore-Tex completely and you put proper leather conditioning waterproofing on the leather. 
So you rub it in and treat the boot like a proper quality leather boot. And if you have the boot 99% waterproof because you put proper treatment on the outside of the leather, then that plus the Gore-Tex is going to be dry. Uh, I never had my boots on our world trip leak and the boots I'm wearing now have never leaked. And they're just plain Gore-Tex boots. Nothing fancy. How do you plan for heated gear for a trip? Electric vest. That's it. Any more than that is unnecessary because you're not going to be using it enough. Um, and if you're in, here's the, the, the traveler's mantra. If it's too darn cold where I am, why aren't I heading for the equator? <laughs> Somewhere warmer. Okay, you have a choice. You're on a trip. Think and plan. And if it's too cold, don't be there. Or go buy another sweater or buy a pair of long johns. If it's that cold there, guess what? The locals are cold too, and they will have more clothing that you can buy to put on and then throw it away or give it to somebody when you get to somewhere where it's warmer. But uh, electric vest to us is an absolute requirement. Susan won't leave the house without her electric vest, no matter what the weather is. So you, even uh, you go out for a day, a ride in the middle of the day, beautiful summer weather. It's lovely. It's warm. But guess what? You find a nice restaurant and you stay a little late and it's got dark and the sun goes down and you're in the mountains and it's cold. That summer riding suit is not enough. Pull out the electric vest, plug it in, instant toasty. It's wonderful. Highly recommended. So what other gear are you taking that we've left out? Good gloves. Two pairs of gloves. You've got to have a summer glove that's not waterproof and a somewhat warmer glove that is waterproof. That's to me is a necessity. I, I wouldn't go anywhere without two pairs of gloves. Are you using any uh, over gloves or uh, some people have mentioned uh, dishwashing gloves? No, no, I've got good gloves. Um, I wear two, I've got two pairs of Rucka gloves and they're ridiculously expensive, but wow, they're good. Really dry, completely waterproof uh, for the, the, the lightweight, they're a light winter glove. And I've ridden when it's snowing with them and they're fine, they're quite adequate. And if you've got heated grips, no, no issue. Um, my lightweight gloves are not waterproof, but they're good enough. And if it's raining, I'll put on the warm gloves and I'm fine. How about handlebar muffs for the cooler weather? If you're riding in the winter in Canada, oh yes. <laughs> Hippo hands are wonderful. Clearly a good helmet is worth having. Should we be worried about lightweight helmets though, getting something ultra lightweight? No, I think, I think uh, it's important to think about the weight. It's too easy to buy a cheaper helmet that's heavy, and you'll find if you're riding all day, every day, for months and years, and that, that heavy helmet gets tiresome. It's nice to have a li somewhat lighter helmet. It's worth spending a little bit extra to get a better quality helmet that's made of a little bit lighter material. So the one thing that we haven't talked about with packing light, and I know it's a big problem for a lot of people, is tools. What, <laughs> what tools are you going to take? And I know you're not taking your whole toolbox. No, that would be a problem. I've got two toolboxes that are both about five feet high. That would be an issue. Mm -hmm. um, I take too many tools. I don't make any bones about it. I've got way more tools than I could get away with. But I used to be a mechanic, and I know that I can fix anything if I've got the right tools. So I take enough to make me happy. And yes, it's too much. I could probably get away with less, but 
I like my tools. Uh, but it's amazing how little you can actually get away with. The, the most important thing is when you're working on your bike and preparing it and setting it up and doing your routine service is that you use the toolkit from the bike, not your big toolbox at the side of the, cor- of the garage. Use the toolkit in the bike. And every time you have to go to the other toolkit, then, well, maybe I need to think about a better substitute or better, add another tool. But if at the end of uh, some servicing, you find that there's a bunch of tools you haven't used, you don't need them. Yeah, that's an excellent tip. I'm using your, your tools and your toolkit for your day-to-day maintenance because it's so easy to find yourself somewhere and realize that that one socket that you need to pull off your skid plate isn't there for you to change your oil, that you've always been going to your, your toolbox for it. Yep, yep, you really feel stupid. <laughs> yeah. And it can be and very difficult. this stuff. And some of this yeah. stuff can be difficult to find. You know, if you have a specific uh, socket, you know, a, a torque socket, and you need an extension or something to get in to undo a bolt, that might be a little bit difficult to find when you're somewhere, or an, or an oversized Allen key or something. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, like the front axle on a 1200GS is a very specific large size, and it's not in the toolkit. So if you have to take the front wheel off without the, without a, the, the right thing, you can't do it. And nobody's going to have a, I think it's a 19 millimeter or something, Allen key. They're, nobody's going to have that. So you've got to make sure you've got the right tools for your job. And then like you're saying that um, you, if you find you're not using a certain tool, then maybe you want to consider it and think, well, maybe I don't want to take that with me. And I think the other point that you, you sort of alluded to there was taking tools that you're really not capable of using. I mean, if, there's, if there's, you've got tools that you're really, that you think that, well, okay, it works fine in the garage, but if I was stuck somewhere on the side of the road, could I really use this? If you can't, there's no point in taking it. Yeah, there's a there's definitely some truth to that. Um, the corollary is I can tell you about one guy I know who he's from Italy, and he says I carry no toolkit at all. I have no idea how to use any of it, and if my bike breaks, somebody will come along, and they will load up my bike and we'll take it to a garage and they'll fix it. And somebody else has another opposite solution, which is I carry all kinds of tools. I have no idea how to use any of it, but somebody will come along and he'll know how to fix the bike and he'll know how to use the tools, but he maybe not doesn't have the tools, but I've got the tools so he can fix my bike for me with my tools. So bottom line, it's going to be up to you what you're, what you're deciding, what, what approach you're going to take. I know I'm, Nick Sanders had mentioned that he doesn't take any tools with him on these big, long rides that he does. I think a lot of times he's riding a newer bike, but still, uh, you know, it's your, your choice and your approach. Yeah. Well, his method is to have a workshop lined up in advance and just wheels into the workshop and they do it while he takes a rest and then off he goes again. Um, but I don't know, having a flat tire in the middle of nowhere. I can think of places in the outback of Australia where it might be two days before somebody else comes along. I'd like to have the basic tools to be able to fix something that's really minor because you'd really feel stupid sitting there for two days and all you needed was a 12 millimeter wrench. And um, as far as camping gear goes, we covered everything except for a tent. The basics with a tent for us, two up, is two doors. One door per person. (laughs) Having to crawl over somebody in the middle of the night to get up and go outside is, it just sucks. It's just not worth it. Um, other than that, very lightweight. For traveling not in North America, I think you'll find that you use the tent less than you expect, quite a bit less. In fact, some people go to South America and find they never use the tent because hotel accommodation is so cheap and the campgrounds are so poor that they just assume hotel it every night. And for five or ten bucks a night, yeah, why not? So don't get carried away with having a big, wonderful live-in tent. And, um, 
it just gets to be too much. I mean, a lot of people end up actually sending their camping gear home from South America. They get tired of carting it around. And I like to have a tent that um, that doesn't have a whole bunch of poles, as, as simple as possible. I think a lot of times this is designed for design's sake with uh, many, many poles on it. It's just more to break, more to set up, more to carry. Yeah, the more poles, there's there's a reason for the tents with lots of poles, and that is that they're stronger. They're designed for really nasty, nasty weather. If you're at the top of a mountain at 15,000, 20,000 feet, and it's blowing up a storm, you want a strong tent, which is going to take a few more poles and guy things out properly and all that. But you're on a motorcycle. You're not going to be in those nasty conditions. You need a good three-season tent, not a full-on winter tent. Thanks very much, Grant. Uh, you're welcome. Good to be here. I hope that helps. Well, before we finish up here today, I wanted to say thanks to everyone who has sent in feedback. Uh, we've been getting a lot of feedback, and every day we get more. So it's great, and keep it coming. It's nice to know that you're out there and you're listening. I've been getting suggestions about things that people want to hear and suggestions for guests on shows coming up. So that's great. Keep it coming. The other thing that's really important, I want to thank those of you who have made a donation to Adventure Rider Radio. We really appreciate it. And it's those donations that help keep Adventure Rider Radio on the road, so to speak. Now, don't forget to drop by the website, send us your comments, send us your feedback. Also, sign up for the newsletter. we got a newsletter going out about once a month now that's got some good information in it. You don't want to miss out on that. Drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and you can find the links there for donations, for feedback, and to sign up for the newsletter. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. My name is Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you by Canoe West Media. And special thanks to co-producer Elizabeth Martin. Hello there. My name is Austin Vince and I'm on Adventure Rider Radio. If you listen to this, you rule me. Hi, this is Grant Johnson from HorizonsUnlimited.com, and you're on Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Rachel from WanderOnAHonda.co.uk, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 